Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. Welcome to another episode on our series of podcasts about writing fiction, novels, and short stories. Sometimes writing is easier than other times, and sometimes it's hard. Essayist Kyle Smith, who worked at the National Review and now is on his way to the Wall Street Journal, talked about writing in a recent column. He was uh, trying to put together a column, and he says it was a, quote, platoon-like jungle slog of inching ahead, sentence by agonizing sentence, partly at the St. Agnes Library on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and then, as the evening deadline loomed, moving over to the Barnes & Noble on Broadway and 82nd Street, so I could swill coffee as I wrote, each syllable like doing a squat thrust. End quote. That's Kyle Smith. Isn't that nice to to hear? An accomplished writer like Kyle Smith sometimes has trouble with his next sentence, his next word, his next syllable. It happens to me, and and maybe it happens to you too. It's nice to know others uh, suffer this at times. For Kyle Smith, and for me, and maybe for you, each new syllable can be like a squat thrust. I thought it would be a a good time to review uh, the main points that we have talked about in this series of episodes. A lawyer tells the jury what he is going to tell them, then he tells them, then he tells them what he has told them. So a summary might be useful. I've boiled it down to 16 topics, and here they are, and they're short. Number one, writing is a craft. It can be learned. Number two, learn from our genre. Reading is one of the best ways to learn to write. Read in our genre. Find out what publishers want and how to do it. When reading a novel we enjoy, we shouldn't just say, I like this novel, but rather ask, why is the story working so well? We should be specific. What is the author doing that keeps us reading? I think we can learn from that. Number three. Our story must contain conflict. Our story must, it absolutely must, contain conflict. The novelist David Morrell puts it bluntly. Without conflict, no plot can be interesting. Without conflict, you don't have a plot. That's David Morrell. Number four, add the conflict early. Conflict should appear on the first page or in the first few pages. The earlier, the better. Number five, tell your protagonist no. Make it hard. A novel is a document of struggle. The protagonist should want something desperately, and your job as a writer is to tell her no until almost the very end. Number six, raise the stakes. Fiction is all about trouble, novelist Richard Bosch says. The more the better. What's better than conflict? More conflict, more trouble, more roadblocks and dangers, higher cliffs, deadlier diseases, more cunning enemies. Novelist Lawrence Block says, pile on the miseries. Excellent teachers of writing use the catchphrase stakes. Raise the stakes. 
increase the stakes, high stakes. Another phrase is upping the ante. Number seven, move the scene forward by avoiding backstory and other pace killers such as flashbacks, over-description, and information dumping. Backstory consists of events that occurred prior to the opening scene of your novel. We should be especially wary of putting backstory into our novels, especially near the beginning of the novel, which is often a prospect-killing mistake. If the novel needs it, be brief. Remember, backstory is almost always more interesting to us writers than to the readers. Avoid fill. When the writer pauses in the scene to tell about the character's past, forward motion has paused. When the writer takes a moment to describe a setting, the momentum also takes a breather. When the writer stops for a flashback, momentum grinds to a halt. These things are sometimes needed, but they're momentum killers. Meetings, telephone calls, eating, waiting, remembering, reflecting. Often these elements are used as information dumps. If a scene isn't moving the story forward, considering reducing whatever in that scene is slowing the momentum. Number eight. Make your character the reader's pal. A novel is a buddy experience. The reader should want to spend time with the protagonist. Number nine, give your character the necessary traits. These include kindness. Your character shouldn't be a Pollyanna and can even have a bristly personality, but when it counts, she must show kindness. Courage. If not physical bravery, then self-sacrifice or forgiveness. Remarkably appealing traits in a character. She should be active. The reader wants a character who does something active rather than passively accepting whatever comes his way. Your character shouldn't be a fool. She needn't be Einstein but she should, make, she should not make stupid mistakes, at least not more than one or two, and those should be fairly early in the novel. The ability to change. Readers want to see growth for the better in a character. The protagonist should be a different person at the end of the novel than at the beginning. Remember when we talked about plotting? A chronology is A, B, C, D and a new scene chronology is A, B, C, D. But we should cut to the chase in our scenes. Our plotting should be B, C to the new scene, B, C. We should begin our scene late and end it early. Number 11, keep a tight point of view. In a third-person novel, about 70% of the point of view should be from one character usually the protagonist, usually one point of scene, a point of view per scene works best. Keep the point of view with one character, always in her head. Number 12, show rather than tell. Here's my favorite 
sentences regarding trying to keep this in the forefront of my writing. Telling. This is telling. Joe's arm itched. And this is showing. Joe scratched his arm. The difference is profound. Showing is almost always more vivid and immediate. Showing reveals. Telling explains. Readers appreciate having things revealed to them rather than explained to them. Number 13. Remember our tips about strong dialogue. The first is the best dialogue is confrontational. Argument is always uh, more interesting than any other kind of dialogue. Avoid small talk. And the reader should drop in on the conversation after it has begun and leave before it would end in normal conversation. Number 14, no coincidences. That is, no coincidences that resolve a plot point. A coincidence, a coincidence might be fine early in the novel. Number 15, Keep the reader hanging until the end. Don't resolve the main plot too early. Just a couple of pages at the end. The, the, uh, the she lives happy ever after, the walk away, should be short. Number 16, use intriguing settings. If you go in, real, in your real life to a certain place more than once a month, it's probably not a good place for a scene unless you're a, a coal miner or, a, or an astronaut, if you are creating a scene, say, to have one character give un information to another, an intriguing setting will enliven the scene. Most scenes can occur either in a dull setting or a fascinating setting. We should choose the latter. Those are uh, the 16 summary points, and here's a, a bonus tip. No exclamation points. It's a small thing, so small it's a punctuation mark. There's an old saying, a novelist should use an exclamation point twice in her career. Don't use exclamation points. They're like yelling at the reader. They'll make our manuscript look like a teenager's diary. Let your words be exclamatory. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, quote, cut out all these exclamation points. An exclamation point is like laughing at your own joke, end quote. That's F. Scott Fitzgerald. That's the end of our summary. I think if you go back at earlier uh, episodes, you'll find each of these discussed in greater detail. I found something new and fun regarding plotting. Here it is. This is from a seminar given by Matt Stone and Trey Parker, who are the Emmy Award-winning creators of the, of the, and writers of South Park. They spoke to a writing class. When plotting a new South Park episode, they use a whiteboard and colored markers. The whiteboard is split into three different acts or scenes, which they call beats. Their key to plotting is to use but or therefore to connect the scenes and not the words and then. This is weak plotting, they say. This happens and then this happens and then this happens. 
and they say this is much stronger plotting. This happens, but this happens, but this happens, or this happens, therefore this happens, therefore this happens, or you can mix it up. This happens, but this happens, but this happens. They sometimes see screenplays from new writers where this happens and then this happens and then this happens and the screenplay just doesn't propel the reader forward. I think this technique might be useful when plotting our own novels. Let's talk about the musicality of the language. How can we make our sentence-by-sentence writing sing? I was surprised when I learned this. Winston Churchill didn't win his Nobel Prize uh, for his role in winning the war, the Peace Prize, but rather for literature. And there's a reason. He was a master of musicality and the cadence of the language. A lesser writer would have addressed his nation with these words at the outset of World War II. I'm going to work really hard and we'll come through this if we all work together. Instead, he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, and tears. Most other politicians would have said, We have had setbacks, I know, but things will change because we are a strong nation and we have shown that it never pays to attack us and, despite our current troubles, have faith in eventual victory. Well, that's not what Winston Churchill said. He said, the master of our language said, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That's Winston Churchill. Isn't it beautiful writing? He understood the language's rhythm. The poet Ezra Pound said, Rhythm is a form cut into time. And the poet Edward Hirsch adds, It is the combination in English of stressed and unstressed syllables that create a feeling of fixity and flux, of surprise and inevitability. Rhythm is all about recurrence and change. That's Edward Hirsch. Some word combinations work, and other word combinations work better. Mark Twain knew of this musicality, of course. This is Mark Twain, quote, When a person has a poor ear for music, he will flat and sharp right along without knowing it. He keeps near the tune but is not the tune. When a person has a poor ear for words, the result is a literary flatting and sharping. You perceive you perceive what he is intending to say, but you also perceive that he does not say it. That's Mark Twain. How do we become musical with our words? The best way is to read musical writers and learn from them. Maybe some of it will rub off on us. Patricia O'Connor says in Words Fail Me, quote, 
Avoiding inappropriate rhythms is easy enough. Only the best writers, however, can go a step further and use rhythm to make their meaning more meaningful. That takes a good ear and plenty of practice. If you'd like to try, listen to what you read and learn from it. The writers you admire probably use rhythm in ways you've never noticed. Look up favorite passages and start listening. That's Patricia O'Connor. She then offers James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain as an example of lovely writing. This is James Baldwin. The morning of that day, as great Gabriel rose and started out to work, the sky was low and nearly black and the air too thick to breathe. Late in the afternoon, the wind rose, the skies opened, and the rain came. The rain came down as though once more in heaven the Lord had been persuaded of the good uses of a flood. It drove before it the bowed wanderer, clapped children into house, licked the fearful anger against the high strong wall, and the wall of the lean-to and the wall of the cabin, beat against the bark and the leaves of trees, trampled the broad grass, and broke the neck of flowers. That's James Baldwin. Patricia O'Connor goes on to say that this passage, quote, owes its stately tread, not just to the beat of the syllables, but also the repetitions. She points out rose, rain, wall. And then she says, and to its forceful verbs, drove, clapped, licked, beat, trampled, broke. Are there some techniques for writing musically? Our language is complex and vast. There are billions of combinations, maybe trillions of combinations, of words that, while grammatically correct and understandable, just don't sound right or could sound better with some of Mark Twain's tuning. One of the best ways to learn about musicality of language is to read poetry. Poetry is a good teacher. Yes, I read poetry, but I also have a cat, Jack, so things even out in my universe. Kenneth Silverman in Edgar A. Poe, Mournful and Never-Ending Remembrance, says, quote, In brief, Poe was becoming the first writer in English, or perhaps in any modern literature, to consistently apply to prose fiction some of the techniques of poetry. That's Kenneth Silverman. Maybe we can do the same. Listening uh, to poems, reading them aloud sometimes, will make us better writers. Here's an example of wonderful musicality, the short poem by Robert Frost, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. It's a famous poem, uh, and deservedly so. Whose woods these are, I think I know, his house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and the frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. 
But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. That's by Robert Frost. Have I ever read anything better, more musical than this wonderful poem? I don't think so. It just sings to me. And this poem can't help but make me a better writer. I'm sure of it. Here's another poem, a short one. This one is My Father's Watch by John Chiardi. Uh, as an introduction, Ptolemy was a Greek mathematician, geographer, and astronomer who lived uh, beginning in 83 AD. In the medieval world of Renaissance astronomy, the primum mobile, or, quote, first moved, is the outermost moving sphere in the geometric model of the universe. I had to look this up to have the poem make sense to me, but once I did, listen to John Ciardi. One night I dreamed I was locked in my father's watch with Ptolemy and 21 ruby stars mounted on spheres and the primum mobile cold and gleaming to the end of space and the notched spheres eating each other's rinds to the last tooth of time, and the case closed. Isn't that wonderful? John Chardy, the poet, knows about musicality. And I like to think that reading this poem has made me a better writer, a more musical writer. Here are some techniques for more musical writing. First, vary the beat. Words have a beat. No drummer bangs his snare, his snare drum four evenly spaced times per measure, measure after measure, imitating a metronome, bang, 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 bang. But we can vary this by thinking about the front beat and the back beat in our sentences. And there's a difference. You've heard of the backbeat in the Beatles song, Rock and Roll Music. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music any old way you choose it. It's got a backbeat. You can't lose it. Here's the front beat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Here's the backbeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Four. The backbeat is used in rock and roll and country and blues and lots of other popular music. This should be uh, varying between the front beat and the backbeat is a good way to increase our musicality and we can hear the beat in our sentences if we listen to it. Here's a sentence. Jeff pulled the boat up the ramp too fast. If you repeat this sentence again and again, you'll sound like a metronome stressing pulled, boat, ramp, and fast, just like a metronome. How else can we vary the beat? There are a couple of ways. Consider altering the number of syllables that occur in neighboring words. Joe found the soap for the dog. This is, a, this is seven consecutive one-syllable words, and it reads like a first-grade primer. But Josephine located the preparation for the Doberman, has too many multi-syllable words too close together. We should mix it up, mix up the syllables in our words. We can also vary the sentence 
the, the length of neighboring sentences. Our minds stop at every sentence ending period. If it stops after 10 words on the page, then after 4 words, then after 12, then after 5, chances are that the rhythm is being well varied. We can also vary the length of paragraphs, which looks better on the page. Uh, one longer paragraph followed by a shorter paragraph. Another way to make our sentences more musical is to use echoing words. Rhyming words like thick and quick work in poetry, but usually are distracting in fiction. Words that echo can add music to our sentences. They echo without rhyming each other. The foam-tipped waves fell away. Foam and fell echo each other with the F beginning a one-syllable word. The sun-struck sea lay before us. Here three S's work well, echoing each other. It's an alliteration. Another way to give our sentences more musicality is to use the lovelier word. Some dogs are uglier than others, and that's the truth. Same with words. The word lovely sounds and reads better than beautiful. Echo instead of reverberate. Fool instead of idiot, though idiot's a fine word. Hill not mound. Tremor not shake. Whether a word is mellifluous or is a matter is a matter of judgment. Generally, consonants are more harsh than vowels. But there's more to it than that, and if I knew what it was, I'd go on about it here. Another way to help our musicality is to use the unexpected word or phrase. We shouldn't always use the expected words. An unexpected word causes the reader to hesitate, which is the equivalent to kicking the bass drum, a beat in the sentence. Instead of, I hated him, try, I loathed him. Everyone all the readers are expecting hate. Not only is loathe a punchier word, it's also a bit of a surprise. The weather outside was frightful instead of the weather outside was cold. Often the shorter word is the better word for musicality, but sometimes not always. Marmalade is a lovely word while jam is just jam. Yes, I know jam and marmalade aren't actually the same thing, but this is fiction. The hound ran over to him, has a small amount of the unexpected in it, in that hound is a seldom used word, whereas the dog ran over to him is standard. And yes, I know that all hounds are dogs, but not all dogs are hounds, but please... Another way to help our musicality is to use the active, not the passive voice most of the time. The active voice is where the subject performs the action expressed in the verb. The subject acts. The passive voice is where the subject receives the action expressed in the verb. The subject is acted upon. Here's, a passive, here, here's an active sentence. Dan ran the race. Here's a passive sentence. The race was run by Dan. Most of our sentences should be active, but once in a while throw in a passive sentence and it'll help the musicality of our uh, 
paragraph. Those are some techniques for musical writing. We've come to the end of this podcast. I'm sure glad you were along for it. This is Jim Thayer. Until next time, please keep tapping those keys.